The text this morning is from Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 37. These are the words of God. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word and for your spirit present here with us. I pray that he would be active in our midst. I pray that you would teach and instruct and admonish, establish and encourage. We pray that you would do this because we dare to ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating, honoring, remembering the entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem and what's called his triumphal entry. In that triumphal entry, he was walking steadily toward a triumph that only he really understood. It was a triumph. Everybody who was celebrating at the triumphal entry knew that it was a triumph, but he was the one who understood the nature of the triumph. They thought it was going to be an ordinary sort of uh, display of victory. They thought it was going to be an ordinary sort of triumph. We're winning now. The bad guys are on the run. But the Lord knew what the scriptures foretold. The Lord knew that he, it was prophesied and the scriptures cannot be broken. The Lord knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to die on a cross. And that is why he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had to steal himself to go there because he knew the nature of the triumph. And this is why, as Chesterton once observed, the cross can never be defeated. The reason the cross can never be defeated is because the cross is defeat. The cross is defeat. What God did is he took defeat and he swallowed it. He took it to himself and he overcame death, he overcame condemnation by taking it on to himself. The cross can never be defeated because it is defeat. Now, the Lord Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph. There was Hosanna's loud acclaim. He was met by an enthusiastic crowd of disciples. We see that in Matthew 21, 1 through 17. That entry culminated in the second cleansing of the temple, verses 12 through 17. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he makes his way to the temple, and then he uh, spends a good deal of time flipping over tables and, and chasing out the, the money changers and those who were selling animals there. He said, you, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So it culminated in the second cleansing of the temple. Remember that Jesus had cleansed the temple once before at the very beginning of his ministry. We see that at the beginning of John. And in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, 13 through 17, Jesus cleanses the temple at the very start of his three-year ministry. Remember also how in the Old Testament, the priest would inspect a leprous house two times before it was finally condemned. You see that in Leviticus 14, 39. The priest would come and then uh, they would give it a little time and then he'd come again and if it was still corrupt, if the house was still corrupt, then the house had to be leveled. Not one stone left on another. Jesus comes the second time, the house is still corrupt, the leprosy of hypocrisy is still pervasive there and he condemns the house of God. Now remember, also, this is important, that Jerusalem contained three main factions of people. 
three main factions. There were the disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, who knew and loved him. We see that in Matthew 21, 9. All right, the, the disciples of Christ who listened eagerly to his teaching, who understood much of it, who understood at least the spirit of it. Then the second group were what we might call the Jesus mobs, the Jesus mobs, who were greatly impressed by him. And these were the people that the rulers of the Jews feared. Uh, Matthew 21, 26, Matthew 21, 46. Remember, even in the book of Acts, when they, they go to arrest some apostles, they, they did it very gingerly. They, they arrested them very carefully because they were afraid of the crowd, because they were afraid the crowd was going to stone them. All right, so the arresting officers walked these uh, apostles very carefully because they were afraid of being murdered by the crowd. Now, I think it's fair to say that a crowd that was ready to murder the arresting officers had not gotten the Sermon on the Mount memo. They, they had not really grasped everything, but they were, they'd been baptized by John. They were, their allegiance, their affections were in that direction and against the establishment. And then the third group were the establishment Jews, the rulers who hated him. The rulers who hated him, we see that in Matthew 12, 14. So three main groups, followers of Christ who generally got it, um, appreciators of Christ who were ready to fight to the death to protect Jesus and the apostles but didn't really um, understand what was going on, and then the rulers who hated him. Now, at the triumphal entry, Jesus told a few parables Jesus told a few parables, not to mention the cursing of the fig tree, that indicated the coming cataclysmic judgment on Jerusalem. So, not only so, but in chapter 22, he has a series of doctrinal collisions with the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, again with pending judgment in view. And then in chapter 23, the Lord launches into an extended diatribe against the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, and that chapter concludes with our text, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often they killed prophets and stoned the messengers sent to them, how often Christ wanted to gather the children of that doomed and faded city under his wings, but their leaders wouldn't have it. That's verse 37. Their house is therefore left to them desolate, verse 38, but the one who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. Now what I want to do today is put uh, Palm Sunday in context. I want you to see the placement of the triumphal entry in the whole passion narrative, in the whole story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, we know that Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Christ has a threefold office. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. Our purpose in this message is to consider his role as a prophet, as the supreme prophet. But there are many other layers to this, this emphasis on his role as a prophet. There are also many other things that we could examine. Christ is going to be the high priest who offers the sacrifice of himself, and he is going to be that sacrifice. And he is going to be the king who rules on the basis of that sacrifice. And he is the prophet who tells us all about it. All right, so Christ holds these offices, and he holds them all together. And we're not going to be able to get to the end of it in this lifetime. We're not going to be able to get to the end of it in heaven. 
All right, the, we're going to be all studying these things for 100,000 years. All of us, all the elect of God, bright shining as the sun, when we've been there 100,000 years, when we've been there a long time, studying these things, mulling over them, then an archangel is going to summon a big meeting and call us all together, and we're, what's this about? And we're going to all assemble, and the archangel is going to say, congratulations, you have all successfully made it out of preschool. <laughs> and we will be so proud of ourselves. Our purpose in this message, I want to talk a little bit about Christ as the prophet. His role as a prophet, the supreme prophet. Moses foretold the fact that a prophet like Moses was going to arise. He, he prophesied this in Deuteronomy 18, 15. A prophet like me is going to arise, and he says, listen to him. Pay attention to him. Jesus is that prophet. But because he is that prophet, he fulfills the prophetic vocation perfectly. The, the office of prophet has a job description. A prophet is supposed to do certain things. And we understand little bits and pieces of that vocation, but we don't really understand the whole pattern. What is that vocation? What is a prophet called to do? This is almost entirely neglected in our day. And when we do pay attention to it, we often understand just the first half of a prophet's task. We think, oh, a prophet is supposed to rebuke the sins of the people. Well, yeah, that's a piece of it. That's a small part of it. And there are so many churches that are refusing to rebuke any kind of sin for any reason at any time. We think, oh, this is a marvelous breakthrough when someone utters the word sin from the pulpit. If someone says, you know, they're actually at the end of the day, when you consider all things and you weigh the balances carefully, there is such a thing as sin. And then he gets in trouble online and is, demands for him to apologize because what he said was hurtful. And, and then there's real pressure for him. There is such a thing as sin. Sin does exist, you know, or whatever happened to sin. We think that person is a, a veritable John the Baptist. That person is a Tishbite. That person is come, coming howling out of the wilderness to tell the people about the fact that there is a sin that you may or may not have committed. Well, we think that the prophet is supposed to denounce the sins of the people. Very few do that in our day. And so when it happens at all, we think we're done. When it happens at all, we think, oh, good. He denounced the sins of the people. He condemned abortion. He condemned homosexual mirage. He, con he condemned these things. But it's not nearly so simple. It's, that's, it's, not, it's not nearly so simple. Let's, l let me describe for you the prophetic cycle. The prophetic cycle of a, of a prophet's job description, and then keep Jesus in mind. What, number one, we begin with shalom, with peace between God and the people. There's some form of equilibrium. The people are at peace. There's peace between God and the people. Two, tragically, second, the people become faithless, and they do so in two directions. They are faithless toward God in their worship, vertical. The, the worship of God becomes corrupt. They become faithless toward God in their worship, vertical. And as a result, they grow faithless toward one another, horizontal. They begin to oppress the widow and the orphan. They begin to rip people off. They begin to steal and bite and tear and devour. So the worship of God is corrupted vertically, and then the people begin to sin against one another horizontally. That's the second stage. Then third, God gets angry with them. God gets angry with the people, and when God gets angry with them, he, uh, you start to see pending signs of trouble. It's 
Trouble's approaching. This happens because God is a jealous husband, vertical, and because he cares for the downtrodden and the oppressed, horizontal. That's the third stage. You, you can see it's not shalom, it's not peace, it's not equilibrium. Trouble is coming. Trouble is coming straight at us. That's stage three. Stage four, at the penultimate fourth stage, God's righteous anger is poured out on the people. The book of Revelation, the flood, you know, Noah's flood. You, you have this out, outpouring of wrath. Then fifth, last, God calms down. God calms down. And you might say, well, that's not a very respectful way of putting it. Well, the Bible talks about it that way. The, the Bible talks about God, God's anger being assuaged. God calms down and balance is restored. This is the full prophetic cycle. Shalom, all right? Then the people drift away, signs of trouble, God's anger bursts forth, and then equilibrium is restored. Now, the prophet's role is twofold. When in, in this whole cycle, the prophet's role is twofold. When the people start to veer off, he is to warn them about the destructive path that they are on. That's the part of the prophetic vocation that we do understand. The prophet warns the people that this is no good. This kind of sinning is going to ruin the country. You're going to wreck everything. He warns the people. All right, so he warns the people. This is the part of the pro prophetic ministry that we understand. A prophet denounces the sins of the people. But then, when the people don't turn away from sin in repentance, and God's anger is aroused, the prophet's calling is to turn back to Jehovah and demand that he turn away from his wrath. Now, that's the part we go, what, what, what? So Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem, and he is prepared, fully prepared, for an adversarial encounter with the enemies of God. He's expecting the scribes and the rulers and the chief priests and everybody to be hostile to him and to come after him. He's expecting them to kill him. But then there's a turn. There's a turn at Gethsemane. Where, and Jesus comes in. He cleanses the temple. He tells parables about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. In our text, he warns about it. He curses the fig tree, which is an image of Israel. He's coming in and he's fulfilling all the first half of a prophet's vocation. The first half of a prophet's vocation. But there's something interesting. The Hebrew word shuv, S-H-U-V, shuv, means to turn. And it refers to a change in behavior. The people are called by a prophet to turn, shuv, and then God is called upon to turn, shuv. For those who understand who God actually is, this is audacity without limit. This is audacity without boundaries. But this is what Abraham does when he intercedes for Sodom in Genesis 18, 22 through 25. This is what prophets all through the Old Testament uh, do. Jeremiah does it, Ezekiel does it, Amos does it, numerous others. This is their calling. This is the prophetic calling. They come to the people, you're in trouble with God, you're in trouble with God, you're in trouble with God, and then the prophet turns and talks to God and says, God, don't do it, God, don't do it, God, don't do it. That's the prophetic vocation. The second part the second part is what Jonah was so reluctant to do. Jonah's problem, as the book uh, bearing his name reveals, is that he was only taking up the first half of his office. All right? in, in other words, uh, Jonah was more than happy to prophesy the destruction of Nineveh. Why? He hated Nineveh. Uh, jo Jonah didn't run because he was a coward. Jonah ran because he knew how this thing worked. 
right? He knew, he, sa- he says, after God shows mercy to Nineveh, he, he says, didn't I say that this, this is why I ran off? This, you're going to show mercy to this wicked city. So Jonah was into uh, a fireball uh, consuming Nineveh. J- Jonah was into that. What he didn't want to do was turn to God and intercede for Nineveh. He didn't want to do that because he, he hated the Ninevites. He hated what they were doing. He hated what they were going to do. But what does the king of Nineveh say? In Jonah, also, don't, unless we be too hard on Jonah, uh, the book was almost certainly written by him. So when, when we're pointing out the faults and foibles that Jonah had, these are things that Jonah learned and, and wrote down to his own detriment for our growth. The king of Nineveh says this, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn, shuv, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn, shuv, and relent and turn away, shuv, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Jonah 3, 8 and 9. So we need to turn from our wicked way so that God will turn from his righteous way. We need to turn from our wicked way so that God will turn from his righteous way. This is the pattern that Moses follows. Look, look closely. This is one of the funnier exchanges in the Old Testament. Look closely at this exchange between God and Moses. This is in Exodus 32. God, in effect, is saying of the Israelites who have um, disobeyed him grossly, God says, in effect, let me at them. Let, let me at those people. Exodus 32, 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. God says to Moses, Thy people, who have corrupted, you know, you know who I'm talking about, the people that you brought out of Egypt? God, God says to Moses. And Moses says, in effect, I like that. Who was, mind, who was minding his own business, tending sheep in Midian, and... And who came and told me to go get them and bring them? What does Moses say? How does Moses talk back? Just a few verses later. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? It's like mom and dad talking. Woman, are you going to do something about your children? (laughs) And she says, your children? Uh, My my children, is it? Well, this is how Moses is, is... Moses is interceding for the people. We're going to see uh, another reference to that a, a bit later. We need to remember these things. A prophetic ministry does not just argue with the people about God. A prophetic ministry does not just argue with the people about God. There's also the audacious element, the one in which the prophet argues with God about the people. That's the audacious element. That's the... Whoa. The prophet does not argue about the righteousness of the unfolding judgment because he was a messenger of the righteousness of the unfolding judgment. They seize on various arguments, but they don't say that it would be wicked, God, for you to do this thing. It wouldn't be wicked. It would be entirely righteous. But they, they'll use any arguments that they can lay their hands on. Abraham argues on the basis of any righteous people remaining in Sodom. What, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous people? What if there's 40? You know, he argues on the basis of any possible righteous ones who might be consumed in the collateral damage. Moses argues on the basis of what the heathen nations will say about it. God, you brought them out of Egypt, and if you kill them all in the wilderness, what are the pagans going to say? What are the heathens going to say? Moses argues that way. 
Amos argues that Israel is so small. God, don't waste your energy. Israel's so small. Have Have a heart. Now, remember that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the prophet who does it perfectly. Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophetic vocation, not in bits and not in tatters like Jonah did. Probably the Old Testament prophet who fulfills it most completely would be Jeremiah, but all of them are types of of what's coming and Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. So the prophets of old are all types of the coming one. Some very clear types like Jeremiah Others not so much, Jonah, but all of them establish the pattern and all are types. Jehovah wants a prophet to arise. Jehovah wants a prophet to arise. What, what do you mean? Isn't this, you might say, uh, isn't this a little bit like dad driving his five-year-old kid to the mall and giving him a dollar so he can run into the dollar store and buy a present? for a birthday present for dad, you know, dad gives him the dollar and the kid goes in and buys a present and brings it out and gives it to his dad and thank you as though this were, uh, only a fool would think that the father was a dollar to the good, right? That's, that's not how this works. At the same time, there's something genuine and real and valuable in that because God, why? Because God is growing us up. God is growing us up into maturity. What is he growing us up into? God is growing us up into people. That's what he's making out of us. What is God making out of us? He's making people out of us. He's growing us up into human beings. And what does the human being look like? It looks like the Lord Jesus. We're we're growing up into Christ. Now, that means God wants us to learn how to be audacious in our prayers. God wants this. Jehovah wants a prophet to arise. And he wants a prophet to come before him to do this very thing. So when, back in Exodus 32, when God says, Moses, take a look at your people. Moses, look at the people that you brought out of the land of Egypt. What, do you, what is God doing? Does, is God unaware of the irony of these words? No, God knows perfectly well what he's doing. What he's doing is he's growing Moses up. He's growing Moses up into a prophet. He's growing Moses up into the kind of friend of God counselor to God, advisor to God, that can stand up and say, these are your people. It's your name that's going to be disgraced if they are all destroyed, not mine. It's your name that's going to be uh, blasphemed by the Gentiles if these people are destroyed. He wants, God wants Moses to get to that place. God wants us to grow up and get to that place. There is a humility that refuses to get up when God says, stand up. And that is a humility which is actually pride. If God says, stand up, stand up before me, and we say, no, I'm a worm, I'm not a man, you know, ask of me. God says to Ahaz uh, through the prophet Isaiah, ask a sign. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. that. That refusal to do it was not humility. It was not humility. God condemns it. So what does God say in Ezekiel 22, 30 through 31? So God is speaking. He says, so I sought for a man among them. God is, what is God looking for? He's looking for a man. I'm looking for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me. What is God looking for? 
God is looking for someone who will stand in the gap before him. Now, it's, it takes a lot of courage to go up against the principalities and powers. It takes courage to go, to go somewhere where you know you're going to get thrown to the lions, or you're going to get thrown in jail, or you're going to get crucified. When the wicked come against you, that takes courage. But what did Jesus do? Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to encounter all of that. But the thing that was the, the big mountain that was in front of him was the turning point at Gethsemane where he turns and faces his father. He was going to face the wrath of man, and he warned the men about it. He warned Jerusalem about it. He warned them over and over again. He's going to go face the wrath of man. That takes courage. And then he turns to face his father. Then he turns to intercede for the people to his father. This is what God's looking for. This is what God wants. This, when Jesus faces his father, when Jesus has this, if we could say, uh, speak this way, and I want to speak this way respectfully, when Jesus has the showdown with his father in Gethsemane, where he submits to the father's will, but he articulates what he wants, he is doing precisely what God wants a man to do, as spoken of in Ezekiel 22. God says, I sought for a man and didn't find one until he got to Jesus. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So all through the Old Testament... You have this pattern, this cyclic pattern repeating where God's judgment falls. I, I sought for a man, I didn't find one. And so my, my judgment fell. I sought for a man, didn't find one, my judgment fell. Now, occasionally you'll have someone like Moses, for example. Moses, uh, remember the five stages I said earlier. When there's stage four is when the violence of God's wrath is poured out. A prophet who is really worth while a, pro a prophet who's really doing a marvelous job is one who gets the people from stage three to stage five without e either without stage four without the wrath of God being poured out or with the wrath of God being poured out in, in a manner that's ameliorated or buffered or, or it's not as bad as it could be Moses was in that category Moses successfully got the people past stage four Psalm 106, verse 23 says, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn, shuv, to turn, shuv, away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Moses stands in the breach against God, the same way God invites a man, he's looking for a man, to stand in the breach before him in Ezekiel, centuries later in Ezekiel. Moses is the one who does this preeminently in the Old Testament, who does it successfully. Jesus is the one who entered Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who entered Jerusalem with a message to the people from God. He entered Jerusalem and he has a message for you people from God. He delivered that message. He goes up to the temple. He flips over the tables. He drives out the, uh, the people selling sacrificial animals. Remember that the outer court, the, the temple complex is about 30 acres, more than 30 acres. And the temple is just a small 
The temple itself is just a small uh, part of that. And that large area was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. Remember that when Peter in Acts 10 has his vision and the unclean animals that are lowered in a sheet to Peter are unclean animals that represent the Gentiles. The clean animals, therefore, represent the Jews. The clean animals represent the Jews. The court of the Gentiles was filled up with clean, sacrificial animals. And when Jesus makes a whip, it says, Jesus fashions a whip, and he goes after them, and one of the Gospels says he was particularly tough on the sellers of doves. And that's because the sellers of doves were the ones who were ministering to the poor. If you were poor, like Joseph and Mary were when Jesus was dedicated at the, at the temple, um, you had to sacrifice a dove and not a larger animal. So Jesus, was, Jesus went through and he drove out the animals. He, um, he, he did all this. This was the crowning glory of Palm Sunday. So everybody's singing. All the people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, all the way up to the temple. Jesus goes into the temple and says... Uh, what this beautiful Palm Sunday needs is to culminate in a one-man riot. That's what he did. So he went to the temple, conducted his one-man riot, and remember, it's a 30-acre parcel, so he's spending a lot of time flipping over a lot of tables. Also, it says in one of the Gospels that the children who were uh, along the triumphal entry route had followed him into the temple and were continuing this, their singing. Right, so they're continuing to sing while Jesus is doing his thing, which was an irritation to the temple authorities. And so they're having a party. The kids are having a party. Jesus is raising this ruckus. And what does he say? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All, this, is, this is the Gentiles' place. When Gentiles come to worship me, this is where they should be. But you have squeezed them out with all these sacrificial animals that represent the Jews. You have made this into a big money-making operation, a scandalous money-making operation, a den of robbers, and you've turned the whole thing upside down. I've come back to see this temple, and it still has leprosy on the walls. And so Jesus condemns it, and there there you have it. And Jesus could say... This place is wicked. I'm sick of you people. Flip over the temples, and then I'm going back to heaven. That's what he could have done. I'm going back to heaven, and deal with it yourselves. Good luck. And then the fireball destroys Jerusalem. That's not what happened. Jesus turns back after having cleansed the temple, after having cursed the fig tree, after having told these parables, after chapter 23 which is full of the most fierce denunciations of hypocrisy in all of Scripture. All right? After all of that, Jesus turns back to be an advocate for the people. He is God's messenger as the first part of the, prophet, the, first part of the prophetic vocation. He's God's messenger to the people. But then he turns back to represent the people to God. He turns back perfectly in order to stand in the gap as his father invited him to do, in order to stand before his father. He did this to represent the case of the people to God, to argue for the people. Now, some might say, but did Jesus argue ineffectively? Because remember, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a flood of wrath that destroyed Jerusalem. 
Yes, but there was also an ark, right? He, Jesus prepared his people. Remember I said there were three groups? There's the, the Jesus followers, there's the Jesus mob, and I trust over time a number of people who were part of the Jesus mob were instructed more fully and, and came to faith in Christ. And then there were the people who hated God, hated Jesus, hated everything uh, that they stood for, and they, they were clinging to their money-making operation, which was the temple. That, the temple complex was a cash cow, and they wanted to use it as a cash cow to the end of the world. They'd be there still if God hadn't done what he did. Now, those three, what, what God did when Jerusalem, Jesus warned everyone. He said, this is going to happen. This city is going to be destroyed. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, head for the hills, get out of this town. And from the very first, and from the very first days of the Christian church, right after Pentecost, what happened? Well, um, Pentecost is a, uh, Jerusalem was a festival city where it had a permanent population that was actually uh, relatively small, less than 100,000, I think. It was a relatively small city. And then during the festivals, the great festivals, all the people would come. Passover, everybody would come. Pentecost, everybody would come. Well, when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was, Jerusalem was in its swollen state. All the, all the tourists, all the pilgrims, everybody had come for the festival at Pentecost. Then God pours out his spirit at Pentecost, and then 3,000 people are converted, and then thousands more in the days following. And all of a sudden, you've got, you, we think we've got growth problems, right? 3,000 in one day, and then thousands in the days following. And all of a sudden, you have a huge church in Jerusalem. You have a huge church in Jerusalem. And Jesus has told them what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He's told his people when to get out, how to get out. And so what do, what do, you, uh, what do you do, O oh believer, if you believe Jesus and you're now a Jesus follower and you own real estate in Jerusalem? Sell. <laughs> Liquidate. All right. this, uh, this territory is not going to be worth very much. And we've got all these people, uh, all these extra people and so permanent residents of Jerusalem started to sell their property they they liquidated their assets they had money that they could help people out and the early Christians were um, living in Jerusalem as a as a group like the Israelites in Egypt right before the exodus right right before the exodus we have we got to pack up our stuff we've got to be ready to go we've got to get out of here and so that's what the Christian church did so Jesus, when he interceded for his people, his intercession for his people, that intercession was successful. He, he prayed that his people would be spared, and they were. He prayed that his people would survive, and they did. And so he, told, he gave every fair warning, and the, and the early Christians listened, listened to him, and they got out. Before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Christians got out. And so in doing this, Jesus made the choice when he turned back to the Father in order to plead for the people, in order to resign himself, which is what he did. He, he said, I know that for me to stand in the gap like this means that I'm going to die. I know that that's what it means. I'm going to die. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew that that was your deliverance. 
Jesus knew that that was the basis of your salvation. And he is so overjoyed at the prospect of you being saved that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus turned back to his father to intercede, offer himself, say, I will be the man who stands in the gap. I will be the man who goes to the cross. I will suffer the death that all these people deserved in their own name, in their own lives, in their own efforts. All these people deserved to die here, but they can't come back from the dead. If I die on their behalf, if I die as their representative head, then when I die, they die. When I'm buried, they are buried. When I come back from the dead, they come back from the dead. You were baptized into Christ. As many of you as were baptized were baptized into his death so that being raised with him, you might walk in newness of life. This is basic gospel 101. So in Jesus, when Jesus turns back to the Father and doing this, he's offering up the ultimate argument. Remember, Moses offers, I'm not saying their arguments were bad, but they were just sort of what was available, you know, that what occurred to them. Jesus offers the perfect argument, which is the argument of the cup that he drank. That is the perfect argument, the cup that he drank. As the hymn puts it, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Our gracious God, our gracious Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit who applies that word to us. I pray, Father, that you would work in our midst here today. I pray that your spirit would be present in resting on us heavily. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, who does not know you in truth, that your spirit would draw him. I pray that if there's any uh, Christian here who does know you but is uncertain that they would be established. I pray, Father, that your spirit would work in us mightily. Father, we do this not because we deserve to ask, not because we have it together, but because Jesus is our perfect representative. Father, we pray in his name, and we pray the words back to you that he taught us to pray, saying, Why do we worship on Sunday, and why is Sunday the Christian Sabbath? Didn't God rest on the seventh day, on Saturday? Isn't that when the Jews worshiped and rested? How did that change? What does that mean? The short answer is that we worship and rest and celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus has now entered into his rest. And since he, since he has finished his work, just like God, had finished his, Hebrews 4, 10. And when did Jesus enter his rest? When did he finish his work? He finished on Sunday, the first day of the week, when he rose from the dead. We also see something of a hint of this possibility in the two different versions of the fourth commandment given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, Israel must remember Sabbath because God rested from creating the world on the seventh day. But in Deuteronomy 5, Israel is commanded to remember Sabbath because God brought Israel out of Egypt. Of course, both are true, and there's no contradiction between them. But the implication is that when God does something really great, his people should remember it by keeping Sabbath. And is there anything as great as the creation of the whole world or as great as the exodus out of Egypt? Actually, there is. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God was a new creation 
and an even greater exodus. We are new creatures in Christ because he has made a new creation. It's as though Christ grabbed hold of the old world, full of sin and death and guilt, and he pulled it with him down into the grave. And then, having paid for all our sins, crushing the head of the accuser serpent, Jesus broke the back of death and rose up on the first day of the week, hauling that old world back up with him, except now it's becoming entirely new. And there, Mary meets him in a garden, mistaking him for what? For a gardener, for an Adam. And there, on that first Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, the world was born again, and Mary Magdalene represents that old world, formerly full of demons, meeting the new world in Jesus and being made completely new. Are you a sinner? Are you a Mary? Then come. This table is for you. This garden is for you. Your Adam waits here for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So Christ came on Palm Sunday not only to fulfill the office of prophet in denouncing our sins and warning us from the wrath of God, but he came to stand in that breach, in that gap between us and the wrath of God. He took it, he drank the cup to the full so that the cup you just drank might be a cup of forgiveness and salvation and joy. So walk in the joy of that, in the confidence of that this week and go with his blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen.